Good morning. It is uh, particularly intimidating coming up here and standing uh, in the shoes of uh, Aubrey. Uh, we have a particularly gifted preacher, brothers and sisters. We really, really do. And when you're following suit with them, it, it's, uh, it leaves you a little uh, <clears throat> uh, nervous, I guess you could say. And um, what I, I would like to say towards that is that uh, he is gifted. We are blessed. And I, I could continually contend that eventually the rest of at-large Harrisonburg is going to discover it. And we don't, I mean, I think we're going to be inundated. And I am happy that he does take so much time and, and treasures it so much, the pulpit, in preaching. But at the same time, holds it loosely enough that he allows others and that he allows it to breathe and to be Christ-centered rather than Aubrey-centered. I, I appreciate it a lot for that. We are called people. And in world history from Garden of Eden through to the culminating uh, event, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, it is this unfolding story of God calling us and calling a people to himself. The theme of the Bible is all about calling out, preserving, sanctifying, and glorifying a people to himself. And he has a zeal for his people, so that he can say to, he can say to his called people, I am, I am your God and you are my people. From the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, to Moses being called and calling the Hebrew people out of the land of Canaan, out of the Egypt and into the land of Canaan, the promised land, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness... Jesus calling the disciples on the beach. Paul knocked off his horse being called to preach it to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, to the Philippians. And as we see in this passage that we look at today from, to the Corinthians. And we see this pattern. It's over and over and over. And it continues throughout history, doesn't it? Through the green lands of, 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 of Ireland, to the cloud forests of Papua New Guinea and Guatemala, to the hustling and bustling streets of Nairobi and Havana and Seattle. It continues to spread, this word, and people are being called and called to a point in time in history where all of us will be gathered around in a point in time in history, not some man-centered event where it's going to be the most awesomest Olympic closing ceremony ever <laughs> or U2 concert waving our uh, lighters back and forth in unison or UN spectacular speech, but rather will be called round the throne of God the throne of Jesus, who in the, ultimate, in the culminating event of all world history, every tribe, tongue, nation, culture, Presbyterians, Assemblies of God, Baptists, Anglicans, people from churches with red carpet floors, people from churches that play rock bands in worship times, and others that, that play organs, Esther. And uh, it'll be all tribes and languages will be there worshiping the culminating event, Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Lamb upon the throne, and He shall reign forever and ever and ever, and we'll walk in the garden with him. And that will be the culminating event, the called people coming to him. When I was uh, about 14 years ago, standing in a convent with Madre Domatia, Tila, I mispronounced her name wrong, darkened kind of convent, I was holding Luther in my hands. And he was in this very rough-hewn type of cloth, and we're standing there. And from that very moment, he's my boy. And I'm his dad. And nothing's going to change that. Not a thing is going to change that. And then when Eva was laid in this little woven basket, and Luther peeks in around the corner, and 
and Katrina lays him down. That was Katrina's daughter, and Katrina's her mom, and Eva is Luther's sister, and Luther is her brother, and that's it. It's done. And it just really came to greater importance, I guess, to me. A couple years ago, we were leading an adoption uh, study, Sunday school study. Like, you know, studying adoption and how it relates to us as being adopted into the family of God. And I think I realized that I had been maybe using uh, improper terminology in referring to them. I would often say, oh, yeah, they're my children. They are adopted. You know, they're, they're my children. But really, the truth, the a more accurate truth is Katya and Anya were adopted. They are Michelle's. Luther and Eva were adopted. They aren't adopted. They were adopted. Past tense. They are our children. And you want to see the Mama Grizzly come out of Michelle, lay one hair on the, hand, uh, the, uh, the head of, Mama, of Anya and Katya, and you'll find out. They are her children. They are family. They are part of the family. Just like that, our familial identity is not found in our skin color. When the other day I'm in the cell phone store with Luther, and a uh, guy comes up to Luther and says... Uh, you know, necesito poco ayuda. He's a kind of Latin descent, the guy. And, uh, and Luther kind of looks at him and looks at me. And <laughs> you realize that the guy was thinking that he's just, you know, a guy of Latin descent who just wandered in and was buying phones. And he didn't realize we're connected. And I said, oh, well, yeah, he's, he's my son. I mean, I'm a bald, round-headed, round-eyed, hairy kind of guy. <laughs> and Luther is not. <laughs> but he is my son. And there is no actions or words or great point averages or tam- temper tantrums or anything good on the, accomplish- on, on the field of play or anything that he can do or can't do that will change that. He is my boy. He is part of our family. And those two are brothers and sisters. No matter how much they get on each other's nerves or whatever they do. And no matter how long the trip to Tennessee is. And no matter how many times Luther sings Mockingbird over and over and over or something like that. He is my son, and we the same way. No matter what our family identity, our familiar identity is, it, our identity is in Jesus Christ. We in this room here have been called by His grace and by faith, and we have entered into the family of God. We are a fairly eclectic-looking group. I mean, look at Zeke. I mean, you know, and 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 uh, you know, Mike, his dad, <laughs> and me. But we are a very, very different group. But we have all been called together to worship together our God. The call of God brings us into fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we see here in verse 10, uh, Paul is saying, I appeal to you brothers. And brothers is not just a term that is this familiar term that we use when we forget the name of the person. Uh, you know, hey, brother, how are you doing in church? <laughs> it's not that type of, there's a greater, you know, in Guatemala we use uh, ad nauseum, even with people that weren't in the church because it would, Save our tails all the time. Hola, hermano. Como esta? You know, forgot your name. But it's, when you unpack it, it reveals the truth of a regeneration in Christ. We become a brother to someone because he chooses, he, God, chooses to adopt us into his family. And the implication of this is that there is a completely unique relationship among Christians, between Christians. In the church of Jesus, we are closer in a far deeper sense than the bonds of blood. The kingdom we seek is populated not just by citizens or soldiers, but by family. We are servants of the king, soldiers of the king. But most of all, we are children of the king together. 
Our loyalty is not the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Our loyalty is grounded in the kinship that we have in Christ and not the kinship coded in our genes or even some cause. Our kinship is through and by Jesus Christ. And so Paul's concern here is for the unity in Jesus, uh, the unity in Christ. And it is also Christ's concern. The unity was a massive concern of his. We see in his prayer here in uh, John 17, he says, I do not ask for those only, these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are one in me, are, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. They, his people, might be one. As a trinity is one, so he desires oneness in us, in our body. You remember how Aubrey spoke of the trinity, and he used that image that uh, Martine has in the back of her, her little journal booklet there. And it's the image of the trinity with, or icon is it, is that considered an icon? And the trinity, you see them all uh, the likening to each other, or leaning, lending their heads to each other, leaning their heads to each other, or inclining to each other. There is this... Um, idea that that just as they the Trinity is is one and one together, so we are to reflect that same reality. And indeed, in the Nicene Creed that we preach, it says we believe in one Catholic and Apostolic Church, right? One body. The whole the attributes of the Church are holiness, Catholicity, meaning the Church is everywhere to be found. It's a global Church. Apostolicity, did I say that right? Apostolicity, apostolicity. The church is founded on the doctrine of the apostles and unity. These are the four main attributes of the church. So as we look here at the Corinthians, their cultural tendencies, which we learned about some from from, uh, Aubrey a couple weeks ago, was that they were very proud people. This was a Roman city now. It It was in Greece, but it was a rebuilt Roman city. And so their pride was in this shining new model that they were the, the model, model Greeks, or excuse me, model Romans in a Greek land. And they were proud of their intellect and they really liked the whole, the, 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 the intellectuals and philosophers were the rock stars of the day. And so to have a, have a highfalutin uh, philosopher or intellectual come to town was akin to you too coming to Baltimore. Hey, dude, did you, did you get a t-shirt in the Baltimore concert? You know, it's, hey, Apollos is coming to town. Cephas is coming to town. And this was their, they were proud in identifying with these guys and speaking of them and, and being affiliated with these guys. And that was a pride of theirs, their, their intellect and their knowledge and understanding. It wasn't a critique of their intellect, but it was the, a critique of their pride in their intellect. So, so Paul is sitting here writing about Apollos. He's saying uh, how Apollos, who came from Alexander, and was perhaps a very gifted philosopher and an orator, possibly. Um, he's not criticizing Apollos, but he's criticizing the notion that people were aligned with him to the point of pride. And you see that with Cephas as well. He was, Cephas could have been very well Peter. And he's not criticizing their affiliation. But we see Paul in verse 14 go for the sweet spot of the problem with the Corinthians when he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach, preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He emphasizes that eloquent wisdom, or in Greek, sophia, which comes from the word sophos, meaning wise and skilled or cultivated or clever. That's not what transforms us. Cool 
uh, twist of words and intellect. It's not the whole point. It's not the point at all. <laughs> it's a transforming power of Christ. And when you know you hear the word sof- sophos or sophia, that comes from a root of sophisticated. Person has airs and they're sophisticated. That's the way that he was seeing the Corinthians and their pride and their division. The, the pride that caused affiliation to these guys, which then caused division. And we see that the root of the division was, was this uh, word uh, schismata. That's used quite a bit. And that's referring to a rending apart of a garment that is whole and perfect. And that they were being man-centered. And you see it again throughout Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3. He refers to them acting like mere men. And that is just carnal in a worldly manner. And this carnality, this acting like mere men was rending apart the body. And it was being man-centered. It was being, I'm from Apollos. I'm from this dude. I'm affiliated with him. And that engendered a pride in them that caused division. So what is Paul exactly appealing for in unity? He says, I appeal to you uh, brothers there in verse 10. He's not appealing for superficial man-made union or an organizational union. Like some sort of maybe ecumenical movement possibly. But rather a spiritual unity that will bind them together in will and purpose. It's not the abolition of distinctions and diversity in the church and perhaps different ways of worshiping. He's not saying you must worship contemporary, you must worship hymns, or you must worship with organ, without. He's saying rather a spiritual unity and that found in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean this ghostly idea of unity in the abstract, but in the practical realities, in the outworking of our common life and fellowship. So that someone walks out of an assembly like today, and if the question were to be asked, what did you see in that place? They will be able to see, I saw something that was more than just natural. That was something beyond it was, there was a unity that, that, and a love for one another that was not quite of the world that's out there. It's different. What I was seeing in there was different. That it was really, frankly, almost palpable that you could see it. That someone could walk in there and, and walk out of here, rather, and say, yeah, that's the way it should be. Yeah. But, but it didn't seem almost man-made. It was almost, it was of Jesus? Can we say, could, we, could someone even say that? Paul appeals for for unity for that same reason that Jesus prays for it. That the world may know that you sent me. That the world may know Jesus. That's the purpose of unity. That's the whole point in the church. That that is why he appeals for it. And it's so important. It is integral to the church's mission in proclaiming Christ. Do we, by our life and the quality of it, reflect that kind of trinity dance that we saw in the back of that thing? Do we reflect this deference to, each, to one another, holding each other higher? Is it, and is it in such a way that people say, this is the crux of it, is it in such a way that people say, I, I want to know what that is. I want to learn more about Jesus. That, that's, that's it. I want to learn more. There's such a unity there that I want to know where that comes from and, 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 and know more about this Jesus. <clears throat> the basis of our unity is, is, called, is a call into God, into koinonia, which means sharing a thing in common. And as a people, God calls us to Christ our Lord out of the darkness and into koinonia with him 
And it is this we share together. How can we possibly be in fellowship with Jesus Christ, God's Son, if we are not in fellowship with other people who are with Him? I mean, I hear, I hear and see people I know. I have relatives who, hey, I feel distant from the Lord. Well, are you in fellowship? It's like kind of a, it's a give and take thing, you know? I mean, it's, it's or rather it's a chicken and the egg thing, rather. If you're not in fellowship with one another, if you're not in fellowship with those who are in fellowship with Him, how can you be in fellowship with Him? It's just this chicken and egg thing. <clears throat> the basis of our unity is God's grace and is demonstrated to us um, by Him bringing us into His family. And His grace to us should be reflected to each other the same way He shows it to us. So that, okay, we're in our trip. You all know the scene Nine hours ago on the road, on we're heading to Tennessee. We're all sitting in the trip, sitting in the car, and one hour into it, Eva's saying, "Dad, Luther's staring at me in a certain way and is bothering me, and tell him to stop." And Luther says, "What? I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. What are you talking about?" And with, and it, you know, and so what does Dad say? He leans her back. You know, first I try the steering wheel and that type of thing to quell things but that doesn't usually work and then you say guys work it out you gotta figure it out we got eight more hours on the road you're gonna have to figure it out and they do they figure it out they somehow figure out in some way right on you you do this sometimes right (laughs) you figure it out God's grace to the other and you figure it out okay well I got you know one way or another we got to figure this out it is that same kind of grace that God is calling to with with each other have you ever heard of someone speak family members in 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 just a just a nasty kind of way you know bad mouthing their own family members I mean it gives you a shiver down your spine doesn't it how much more should we with in our bonds in Christ should avoid that type of nasty talk with each other, towards each other. The basis of our unity is unity in mind. And Paul speaks directly to this. He says, be united in Christ in mind. The, the sense is unity in mind. And the real scandal of our divisions is not that we don't meet and worship the same way. And we're not, he's not asking to worship exactly the same way. But that we all don't meet under the same, but that we don't believe in the same gospel. Or believe in the same apostolic truth and committed to the same orthodox revelation of Holy Scripture. The mark of a divisive church often is one that drifts apart in agreement on the nature of Christ. It, it, you, can just, you can just bet on it many, many, many times. You'll see that the, the church that's divided, part of the root is that their perspective on Christ has been, has been lost. Their, their eyes have, are not set on Christ. I mean, some of the older folks in here... I know you've seen it. (laughs) I have. So at this particular time in our church, it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal? Why, why, Why a big talk on unity in a church that, hey, things are going swimmingly right now. We're a church plant that... There's a lot of lovey-dovey stuff going on, and we're just crazy. It's wonderful. And what's what's the what's the big deal? Well, we do know from Scripture that First uh, Peter five says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because of your adversary, the devil, who walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." And I would suggest that perhaps besides sexual sin, that division of the kind where you take sides and you badmouth someone and you latch on to someone within the church that you are behind. I would say that that is one of the primary means for uh, 
the evil one in disrupting and blunting the mission of the church. You know, the Band of Brothers movie uh, is one where you, you just marvel about how these guys go from Normandy beaches all the way to Berlin, and, 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 and it's just emblematic of, what, of, of many troops or many, um, uh, what, what was their unit? Their, their unit, many units just like them went through. And you marvel about how these guys would, go, would be in the foxholes and would go up and over the top for their, their comrade that was wounded and through the enemy fire and grab them and throw them on their back and walk through enemy fire some more and bring them to the medic. And these guys that a year before, perhaps, didn't even know each other existed, let alone would be in a foxhole with them. Some were African-Americans or Italians or, or waspy guys or just people that were completely different. All of a sudden are willing to die for each other at such lengths. And why would that be? Why would they go to such lengths with each other? Was it for the American flag and freedom and the American way and apple pie? I hardly think so. It was, it was a, a very intentional, in part, method by the army that would prepare them for this and so that they would have this bond with each other. And I would suggest there's some very practical things that we can learn from that as a church, as we are in our uh, infancy or rather maybe toddler stage is a better way of saying where we are right now. And I would su- suggest some four practical ways that we can achieve greater unity. And that would be, number one, be preparing. These guys and the band of brothers, they prepared, right? They had boot camp. They worked. They trained together. If we're, not in, if we're not studying scripture, reading together, learning together in small group, I, I think it's going to be hard to have a strong affiliation and strong unity with others when you're just floating in at 10.30 on a, or 10 o'clock on a Sunday and hightailing it. I think we need to prepare and train and learn in the word together. That's number one. Number two. Cultivate a life in common. And another way of saying that would be build fires. Build fires. Friday at the camp out, while we were sitting around the campfire, you know, with our group, the church over at the Seacrest, we're singing songs and they're swapping tales and the boys are out playing Lord of the Flies in the cornfield. I don't know what. And and they come back and they, they tag team and they, you know, they check in and then they go back out and... All this hubbub of activity going on. We're creating stories and we're sharing stories and we're swapping stories. We're building fires and we're cultivating a life in common. It just can't happen in the abstract unity. You need to build and and create stories together. Create stories of, 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 of outreach and mission and discipleship and seeing the excitement that happens when we, when we share the, the wonders and glories of Jesus Christ together. I would suggest, and this is a, an aside of an aside, <laughs> that this is easier for the ladies. You know, y'all, I was in Zoe's, went to, went to the restaurant the other night and hung out there. Uh, it, it, I, think it, I think it's easy, more, you're more inclined to that in this day and age than men are. And I think men, we need to think about maybe being a bit more intentional on how we're going to do that. You know, we, we put in our work week and not, not that women don't put in a work week, um, uh, but we put in this work week and we do this thing and, and then we touch, you know, touch base on Sundays and slap each other in the back. But can we figure out maybe ways that we can be cultivating life together uh, and, and life in common? Uh, final point, cultivate a culture of sacrifice. Now, 
Paul is referring, in, in, in the message, I love the, the translation. It says, um, you must learn to be considerate of one another, cultivating a life in common. Uh, a month ago, we were harvesting strawberries that we had weeded around like crazy, and we were having a good old time, and then a month passed, and we realized we hadn't touched the strawberries. And what do you know? Weeds are everywhere in that, because we hadn't cultivated. We just hadn't cultivated. We need to cultivate it just doesn't happen in the abstract. A, a, uh, a culture of sacrifice. And I would suggest that it already is in motion in many ways. Um, there's a movie called Babette's Feast. And we saw it in a small group a couple years ago. Uh, I, I think it's just an amazing movie. And, and for you who like action movies, forget it. That's not your kind of movie. But it, it uh, French cook, best, best in Paris, leaves, goes to the coast of uh, Denmark to these... To live with, she was taken in by two ladies in a very stark community, fishing community on the coast. They're Puritan in nature. They have um, the, a father has passed away, and they want to celebrate his his life. He was a spiritual leader in the community, and uh, this group that would meet in their home have now grown old, and they're they're all crotchety and at each other's throats and bickering and all this kind of stuff. And this woman, the French woman who was a chef, these Puritan women didn't even know that she was such a well-renowned chef. They allow her, when she wins a lottery, to take all of her money. She takes all of her money, Babette, and, and makes this massive feast. Just makes this huge feast for, these, for this group, for these two ladies and their little Bible study group. And uh, let me just read you a quote from uh, Wendy M. Wright that says... Babette herself is clearly a Christ image, coming mysteriously and humbly to live with the community, taking on the role of a servant, finally giving all she has to provide a banquet in which the most profound longings of the heart are answered, and hunger is filled. Wine is poured out in excess. Bread quite literally mirrors manna in the desert. And you see, the sacrifice of Babette sets the table for reconciliation. Her self-sacrifice cultivated it, it it drew it out of the, of them and so that by the end of the movie these old guys are slapping each other on the back and they're dancing around in the well at the end and they're just full of life and it all came about from the seed of her self-sacrifice to them by giving it all by pouring out everything she had in every way she knew possible and that was her gift of cooking i see it in i see it in our church i see it when um Two days before his operation, Rick, I'm going to embarrass you, is, is working on Ioannis' car. He, he was desperately trying to get fixed and for inspection. And there, Rick and his getting prepared for operation and everything else takes the time to do that. And not only that, but goes the extra step and invites them over with Martin's wonderful cooking. And they stay till 10 o'clock at night. Ioannis and uh, Mariolis recounted to me that it was just a marvelous time. And he was just glowing from not only the car being fixed, but even more from being with these very different people, Rick and Martin, uh, and just fellowshipping with them. I think it's a perfect example of how that cultivating sacrifice, which can lead us in, as an impetus to the point that we go this Saturday and help out Rick and their house and, and uh, in their cleanup and whatever else you're going to have planned for us this Saturday. And that's at what time? I'll talk about it today. Okay. At, at their house this Saturday. <clears throat> the final, I said final before, didn't I? Uh, one more final. 
One more final on how we can um, maintain and attain unity, greater unity. Welcome and incorporate our gifts from God. You'll notice, this is a great opportunity to be taken aside and say that you'll notice that a lot of our activities, and it will be the case, um, will be such that uh, most age groups will benefit from each other. Uh, it's a fancy way of saying essentially that it will be our tendency to move away from the tendency of the American church to segregate age groups. We're going to be less inclined to have the toddler group, the, the preschool group, the, the elementary, the tweeners, the teeners, the college age, da 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 We'll be less inclined to segregate and we'll be more inclined to have activities where we're all together. That will be our tendency as a, as a leadership um, and as a, as a church plant. That is where we will be tacking towards as a group. And the reason is, <clears throat> as I think I found it in a book uh, that uh, Eugene Peterson wrote called Like Do, like Do Your Youth. Wonderful little book for those of you who have teens that might be uh, beginning, beginning down that path um, in parenthood. And he says, um, he uses a wonderful um, way of bringing out this concept of all, valuing all age groups. And he uses specifically adolescents. We, we value all age groups, but I want to particularly pick on the, the teens right now. Um, and, and, and let you know and say specifically to you guys, specifically to Jacob and Hanson and, and Luther and the rising ones like Eva and, and uh, Deirdre. And who else am I missing? Um, and Katja. Katja. And, Gra- and Gracie, yes, and Gracie. Um, you guys, girls, young ladies, young men, you are gifts from God to us. I want you to hear that. You are, we, are, we so often will hold a little bit, I mean, you know, you hold Solomon in your arms, and how can you not say, what a gift from God, you know? But you guys, and all of your, as you're growing into that stage where you're gangly and awkward sometimes, and you feel like you've got a zillion different emotions running through you, and all of that stuff, you are gifts, gifts of God to us, and our congregation. <clears throat> And so as we as middle-agers who are in that time of life where sometimes things can run dry or we can get uh, jaded maybe and, and uh, you know, maybe some of our dreams and hopes and aspirations are, are starting to wane and we're kind of uh, feeling in the doldrums of life. You teenagers, young folks, you bring, a, you bring a life and energy and a fresh hope and discovery. And yes, some awkwardness sometimes, but it's a wonderful awkwardness. And just know, just like as I was saying, there's, there's no amount of stupid things you can say or grade point averages or good or bad or success in this or that and the other that can change that you are part of our body and we want you in every, in every way, shape, or form of what that is. You are gifts from us. And that is the same way as it spreads out through all the age groups. And the more that we do things together, I think, it will help us, middle-agers, for instance, in our as we were with the young people. And for Luther, as he's holding the, the, the babies, you know, and he's doing activities, I think we deprive ourselves when we segregate so much in age groups like that. Um, it's a blessing to be, to be able to take Fran home to hear her life stories and lessons that she has to recount. You hear that, Fran? You'll often hear Aubrey refer to Shalom. And it refers to a whole, I may not be saying exactly the way he would say, but it refers to a wholeness and integrity of life 
establish in a right relationship with God and others. It's the absence of hostility and establishment of prosperity and tranquility. Christ brought shalom. He brings shalom, but with a cost. And it's his blood. And without the forgiveness of sin, we are a lost and hopeless people. And the difference between the world and the church is not that one wants peace or unity and the other does, does not. We all desire peace and unity. The difference is that the church wants the one who has brought peace through his blood and the world does not. But we forget this, right? And the problem is that frequently we do not act like God's own blood-bought called people. We allow hurt feelings, personal agendas, misunderstandings, all that kind of stuff, false expectations to deter us from our unity found in Christ. And we forget that, that we are all sinners, redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, and that none of us are better than any of us. Let us remember who we are, where we will be, at His throne, in the garden, in the new heaven and earth, worshiping Him together forever. Let's pray.